Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hey everyone, Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global. Today, we're going to release a few additional segments from the Startup Review podcast. Some of you may have read the Startup Review, the book, the book that Reid Hoffman and I co-authored back in 2012. In that book, we look at the best of Silicon Valley startups and derive entrepreneurial principles that can transform the careers of any professional across all industries. We updated the book in 2022 and released a podcast series, which you can listen to in full at thestartupreview.com. In this episode of the Village Global podcast, I wanted to share a few select segments from the Startup Review podcast relevant to founders, investors, and anyone working in tech. In this first clip, Reed and I talk about the hustle of investor Chris Saka, the way that he creatively got his foot in the door when he was first starting out in his career. Let's listen in. Sometimes the art of the hustle is just being creative about a slight reframe of how you're presenting yourself or presenting your idea. We tell the story of Chris Saka in the book. Chris Saka is today a billionaire climate investor, but once upon a time, not too long ago, he was an unemployed lawyer with lots of student debt sneaking into the kitchen of event venues trying to break into effectively tech industry events to network with people and see if he could cook up some sort of career opportunity. And his issue was he had a business card that just had his name on it, just Chris Sockett's name and a phone number and email address, and people weren't super impressed by that. So he had this kind of novel idea of inventing a consulting firm. I can't remember what the name was, but it sounded very consulting-y. The consulting firm employed one person, which was him. He didn't create an LLC. He just literally created in the organization as a brand, put that brand on his business card, a fancy URL website, email address. And as he started giving out his business card at events, with this kind of business card, he got a lot more interest. A lot of people, oh, you must be a legit you know, consultant in business and technology. A small little tweak, but that made a big difference in terms of how people received him. And I do notice this is where I think people who are great at hustle do have this sort of creative sense about them. Like they know a clever way, even in terms of following up and trying to get someone's attention, like a clever way of gaining mind share and perhaps seeming more credible or seeming more exciting than they would otherwise. Well, I think there's... A bunch of different things that kind of go under the hustle thing, you know, not the least of which is, you know, invest in your LinkedIn profile because it is also where people find you and people will look you up. Look and, you up. Yeah. And most often now, probably it's the most common thing when people say, oh, this person, you know, who are they? What should I do? I'll look at their LinkedIn profile. Or I'm looking for people who are really, really good at, you know, kind of marketing NFTs. Who's really good at that? Well, I'll, I'll search on LinkedIn for that. You know, that kind of thing as, as a way of doing it. So there's a whole bunch of things. But I think within the hustle, it's how do you put your best foot forward? doesn't mean mislead, right? A consultant practice with employment of one with a website is not misleading. And doing the things where you go, ah, because by the way, that is substance, yeah. right? Which is the, you're on ball enough, you're careful about this, you're doing it with some intelligence about how you're presenting and how you're building your network and how you're interacting with your network as a way of doing it. And that that is how you put your best foot forward. Because so much of this book and this, all these ideas intersect with network. Yeah. And so you talk about LinkedIn profile, but also I love this example of how do you apply hustle to how you build your network? Yes. And there's so many things here, but among others, it's like being a little bit more diligent and understanding the connection path 
to people you're trying to meet. Yes. So people who have good hustle, like when I think about the sorts of people I interact with that have great hustle, one of the things they do is like a founder we backed at Village Global just sent me a note the other day about Series A investors he wants to pitch. And he went through my entire LinkedIn graph and pulled out eight VCs that I'm connected to and said, how about this? How about this? How about this? I can write a affordable email for each subject line that are like the whole best practices for how to get investor intros. And that level of hustle of there's a sort of proactiveness to it. There is a no task too small, like it's kind of grinding administrative work to go through someone's LinkedIn connections. But to do all that upfront on the receiving end of that just filled me with feelings of admiration and excitement to support this entrepreneur. Like it makes me think that he will be more successful in his business and life because of these small little things he's doing to make the process of expanding his network in this case be more successful. And what's more, you have a higher degree of confidence about making the intros to people because you know, well, he already applied this much diligence to this part of the process, Yeah. right? If he's going to be as diligent about the meeting and the prep and presenting well and everything else, because the mechanism I use on LinkedIn for when I introduce two people is, will both people thank me for the introduction even if an item of business doesn't happen? No, thanks for the introduction. Yeah, I met them. Not right for me, but thanks for the intro. Yeah. Right? And if that's what you want to be is where, where the two people you're introducing are both like, thank you for that. Yeah. When I think about hustle and network building, it often shows up for me in doing advanced research. Mm. Like one thing that drives me crazy, I hope this is not too ego oriented, is like you meet, I meet somebody who's seeking my time and attention. Like it's a little bit imbalanced and they haven't read the startup of you, read other sorts of things I've written and ask a whole set of questions that have, I have or collaboratively written about in many different venues. And it drives me crazy. I'm kind of like, and I try to walk the walk on this myself, but if I'm seeking to build a relationship with somebody who I don't already know, to really voraciously consume whatever they have published already to show up to that interaction prepared. And so I think hustle can manifest as being great at information management and information seeking as it relates to building relationships. In the second clip, we talk about name dropping. Now, your network is a key part of your career. Everyone knows that. And if you have a powerful person in your network, you might be eager to let others know that. But in this excerpt, we talk about how to let others know about your network thoughtfully and with tact. Let's listen in. So let's talk about a part of an asset that people have in their careers is their network. And a way that people often convey the strength of their network is by referencing people they know, which is a long-winded way of saying name dropping. And name dropping fascinates me, right? You understand what's going on, which is someone's trying to establish credibility and convey to the world that, hey, I'm a networked person and you should know that about me. The thing about name dropping for me, I'm curious your takes, I don't think we've ever talked about it. I find name dropping very annoying, but I have to admit sometimes it's effective. When I'm meeting somebody for the first time or even on their it's not so much on a LinkedIn profile. It's usually like blog posts they might write or tweets. They'll say, oh, and, you know, my friend Barack Obama and I were playing golf or, you know, whatever. I was hanging out with my buddy Brian Chesky last week, you know, just sort of gratuitously mentioning high-profile people on the network. And those are ultra-high-profile. Two friends of mine, yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> yes. Um, I think I probably did that unconsciously. When I see that happening, there's a part of me that says, ugh, that's so distasteful. Like, why do you have to – you clearly are distained because you want, you want the world to know that you and Brian Chesky are friends – you don't really give a shit about the point you're trying to make about golfing or whatever. So part of me that finds it distasteful at a sort of a gut level. But then there's a part of me that says, wow, you and Brian Chesky are playing golf together? You must be somebody. You know, you must have, have some importance. Brian has a lot of people he can hang out with. He's chosen to hang out with you. Wow. 
And so how do you parse name drop in, in this context? It's actually a complicated subject and even has one thing that we cover in this book, which is there's phases in your life. And so you should recognize that while when you're young and up and coming, you might emphasize a little bit more towards the name dropping and then later need to to back off that some just because you're trying to be noticed and you're trying to get stand out from the pack. And the fact that, that Brian rates you and so forth will help you stand out from the pack, you might edge a little bit in that direction. But also the kinds of principles are, you know, for example, would Brian mind being mentioned in the circumstance? Like, you know, part of, if you're legitimately that kind of thing, would it be the kind of thing that Brian would go, oh yeah, that's totally cool. I, I'm totally happy for you to be helped by mentioning it in this circumstance. And, you know, like you bringing me up, you're having a duty of care to your relationship with me or friendship with me or whatever else. I think that's an important kind of self-check. Another one is, being graceful about it. Like, for example, not like, well, I'm trying to figure out how to mention I know Brian Chesky in this conversation, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's actually, in fact, oh, well, you know, look, I think one of the great entrepreneurs of our time uh, is Brian Chesky. And I happen to be playing golf with him. And here's why he's a great entrepreneur of the time. And so would you advise, separate from Brian specifically, would you advise somebody on their LinkedIn profile as they describe their set of career assets to say something like, I have a really strong network, like to declare that statement at a sort of conceptual level? Well, if you were doing it, I would do it a little bit more of, I'm really grateful to have a broad and diverse network of people who have been, you know, real help to me as I've navigated. Because by the way, if you say, I have a really strong network, you're also saying, I'm maybe more of a hustler than have hustle. Yeah, like I like, yeah. like I, yeah. I'm more of a networker than have a network, yeah. you know, as a way of doing it. So you want to show that grace of that you care about those people, that it's viewed as an alliance, you know, our second book, yep. you know, in this and so forth. So there's ways you can do it and do it with, you know, grace, but also strength. Um, so if you say, yes, that can be a great thing. Now, an even better way of doing it is to say, well, one of the things I really learned from one of my colleagues, Brian Chesky, was da da da. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that kind of thing. Because by the way, then Brian go, great. I'm glad you learned that from me. Me being yeah. a an educator on that topic is something that I'm actually or sharing that learnings of that topic is something I'd really want. I mean, That's, attributing a lesson to a high profile person or network is a sneaky way of of checking a lot of boxes here. Yeah. But again, that goes but back to the very gonna, first principle. Yeah. Because it's like the, oh, if they would say, Yeah, I'm glad yeah. you did that. Like even people I don't know, if they say, Hey, I learned, you know, the following from Reed Hoffman on the Startup View podcast right, or right. da da da. That's great. If you're an infinite learner living in permanent beta, as we say in the book, and you're interested in thinking about your network systematically, every person in your network, what have you learned from that person? What's what's a key lesson or an insight that you've gained from that person? Because that's not only is it an interesting way to sort of catalog the people you know, it will also allow you to express gratitude to that person for teaching that lesson. And as you pass on key lessons to others, if you attribute it to somebody, it allows you to sort of convey sort of the generational transfer of wisdom or kind of how knowledge is embedded in a network. Like you're kind of making multiple points. If I tell you, I learned this lesson from someone else, as I tell you the lesson, I'm also making sort of the meta point that wisdom has been transferred from one person to another. And now you should pass it on, you know, yeah. if you agree. And that you know it. Yeah. So it accomplishes a lot of tasks. It's almost an interesting like network building exercise of write down the sentence, a sentence or two a key lesson you've taken from someone in your network. Yes, exactly. And I think that's a good thing to do. And so those would be the ways to do it. Because then, by the way, you're also showing that you value them. 
that the way that you participate in a network is not, it's about me, it's about me, it's about me, you're an asset to me. Yeah. It's we're doing this together. And I value the fact that we ally together. I value the fact that we work together. I value the fact that we help each other. And, and I'm showing that in the brand that I'm doing, mm. right? Because yeah. all of that then gets reflected in that personal brand. Yeah, totally. And it's a great gratitude practice, which is something I'm trying to do more this year. The expression of gratitude usually means so much more than you possibly imagine it can be. And you don't need to make a big production. It's actually better not to make a big production of it. Yeah. <laughs> right. But those little things can be can be super meaningful in life. And by the way, if someone's like done something amazing, it's like, hey, you did that amazing thing. Yeah. And even people who are very accomplished, very successful, people who you might think have been complimented a million times will still appreciate hearing yeah. that. Okay. Now in this final clip, Reed and I talk about navigating status. Like it or not, status matters to career success. We talk about how status dynamics play out in the workplace and how you can skillfully navigate them. Again, let's listen in. Today, we're going to talk about a part of the career landscape that admittedly is a bit uncomfortable to talk about, but it's really important. Status and how to navigate it. By status, we mean we're referencing a person's power, prestige, and rank within a given social grouping at any given moment in time. And the reason this can be a little uncomfortable to talk about is that many people, when they talk about career strategy, are prone to perpetuating a sort of meritocracy myth of a perfectly even playing field, as if hierarchies don't exist in every room you enter in your career. Like it or not, the career world is rife with power jostling and gamesmanship and status signaling and just plain old ladders of authority. And so it's especially important if you're early in your career to understand how these dynamics work. And when you're crafting a career and building your network, you want to move through these delicate social dynamics with some deftness. And Reed, we thought it'd be fun to start with a story we tell in the book of best-selling author Robert Greene. Should I share that with our listeners? Absolutely. So before Robert Greene, who wrote 48 Laws of Power and a set of other best-selling books, before he became a best-selling author, he worked for an agency in Hollywood that sold human interest stories to magazines, film producers, and publishers. His job was to find the stories. So as a competitive person, Greene wanted to be the best. And sure enough, he was soon finding more stories that got turned into magazine articles and books and movies than anyone else in his office. One day, Green's supervisor took him aside and told him that she wasn't very happy with him. She wasn't specific, but she made it clear that something just wasn't working. And Green was befuddled. He was producing lots of stories that were being sold. Wasn't that the point of his job? He wondered maybe he wasn't communicating well. Perhaps it was just an interpersonal issue. So he focused more on engaging his boss, meeting with her to go over his process and his thinking, communicating with her and being likable. But nothing changed. And he continued to be successful at finding really good stories to sell and winning the praise of his colleagues. Eventually, tensions boiled over and the boss interrupted a staff meeting and told Green that he had an attitude problem. No more detail, just that he wasn't being a good listener and had a bad attitude. A few weeks later, after being tortured by the vague criticisms, despite his solid work performance, Green quit. A job that should have been a stellar professional experience had turned into a nightmare. Over the course of the next several weeks, he reflected on what had gone wrong with his relationship with his boss. What he realized was this. He had assumed that what mattered was doing a great job and showing everyone how talented he was. What he failed to recognize was how his very visible success might have diminished his boss in the eyes of others. Simply put, by being so good, he made her look bad. He had failed to navigate the status dynamics around him, failed to account for the, the insecurities, the anxieties, the egos of everyone else in the office, particularly the people above him on the ladder. 
and he paid the price with his job. So Reed, this is one of these stories that illustrate a kind of a dark truth of how the world works. It's not that the very best people always win or get ahead, right? It's sometimes people who have the meta skill of navigating these tricky dynamics with your manager and and your manager's manager and others in the office. Yeah. And, you know, part of the thing, you kind of look at this and go, oh, this is human foibles, it's human weaknesses, it's it's terrible. You know, how could someone let this boss let their ego get in the way and be interfering in what otherwise the organization could be producing all these great scripts and doing all these things? There's coherence of the organization. There's a notion of actually organizations where people show respect to each other and kind of invest in that in terms of teamwork or positive and parts of the same coin. So it's not just a, a hero and villain story. The villain is this terrible ego. Because by the way, also people sometimes motivated by their ego go build amazing things and do things. And, you know, as we were going through that, the green story again, one of the things I was remembering is, you know, one of these kind of funny maxims in the business world, which is when someone says, well, money doesn't matter to me, that usually means money matters a lot, right? Kind of is the kind of thing. It was like, status doesn't matter to me. It's like, oh, status matters a lot to you. I think Freud called that reaction formation when we're stressed and we're asked for our opinion on something that has an awkward answer we will say the precisely the opposite of the thing we actually believe. Yes, and it may even be self-deluding to even go further into the psychoanalysis part of it. And so what it becomes intelligent to do is to recognize we're functioning in human systems. Life's a team sport, they're part of teams. Teams, by the way, can have someone who is a really, really good kind of point guard or someone who's a really important coach. And if you kind of say, well, the coach, you know, I'm going to just disrespect them. It's like, well, that's going to be a challenge. And so you have to navigate the human system part of it. And by the way, that's part of what can make the team higher performance. It's not just simply a potentially sometimes a bow to people's misshapen egos, but also sometimes to how the team dynamic works. And so it's not something to be muttered about and spit on and everything else necessarily. Uh, by the way, sometimes people's egos can be a real problem. It can be a dysfunction to the whole team. Now, as we were going through the story again, what it made me realize again is that one of the key things is kind of the thread whether it's the network section or the life as a team sports section, is to be very proactively choosing your team and developing your team. You know, part of the thing that I have found that's really instrumental about being good at teams is like, for example, giving people credit. Like say, oh, you thought of that great idea or, you know, I'm iterating on this idea because you set me down this path or you did really good work here and so forth. And that is the kind of thing that we all, I think just about everybody even if they don't acknowledge it themselves, hungers for in the things they do. And by the way, that doesn't mean don't be critical, don't be in permanent beta, don't be always learning. Of course, all of those things, which we also put in the book. But to be recognizing that the social dynamics are part of what makes a high-performance team and then work in a way to enable the high-performance dynamics. So many great points there. And I think you're right. I mean, the green story can be seen as a dark story, but there's, there is a reason to be empathetic to that manager, which is we don't know exactly the details of how green in his swashbuckling 20s was handling himself in that office. But there's something to the point of, are you a good team player? Right. It's not just about individual raw performance. And so definitely agree there. I think your point about giving credit is a great tactical tip. Sounds simple. But especially younger employees frequently fail to remember that powerful people often expect to have their ego stroked, their needs accommodated, and their power acknowledged frequently. And you might think they're over it. Oh, they've, they're so accomplished. Why would the vice president ever care about me, the lowly entry-level employee? Why would they care about my opinion to say they did a great job? 
but they actually will value it. And then more importantly, when it comes to your direct manager, your direct supervisor on the job, if you do great work and you and your manager go into a broad company meeting to present the work that y'all did together, but maybe that you mostly did yourself, if you try to hog all of the credit, it might seem like the rational or even most accurate way of describing what happened. You know, maybe you and your manager worked on a report together and you did 95% of the work and your manager did 5% of the work and you walk into a meeting. If you hog all the credit in that interaction, you will fail to get closer to your manager. That manager is less likely to be your ally. By contrast, if you shower them with credit, especially in front of others, not in a dishonest or disingenuous way, but fully acknowledge their role in helping guide you to do all this work, that can go a long way. Again, don't have to be over the top. These are just small, subtle references that should be issued authentically. But don't forget it. And I think sometimes younger employees or more junior folks think that because they're junior, the most important thing to do is to beat their chest and remind people that they have talent. And they forget some of these small references. And it's that forgetting that can lead to the Robert Greene scenario of receiving vague criticism and ultimately getting separated from a company. You know, just to reemphasize something really important, what you said there is always look for the authentic part of it. You say, well, what should I praise you for? Well, I should praise you for things that I genuinely think are good and, you know, exercise some creativity. And it's much more authentic. It'll come across authentic. It'll reinforce the right kinds of loop. And if, by the way, you can't be thinking about things that you could praise with this person, you have a different problem, right? If you're working with them, for them, et cetera. And generally speaking, you know, one of the things that really makes for good teamwork, good alliances, good friendships is to over-endow the credit, right? So you might say, well, we both came up with this idea together. Well, actually, Ben, your initial insight, which really led to us working on this deal, was so important, da-da-da-da. Okay, it sounds like it's supposed to, you know, my brain thinking it was 50-50. It sounds like I'm saying 65-35 or 70-30. But if we're each doing that and we're in a good dance with each other, and this is part of selection, then we're both so much more happy and so much more productive in terms of things we're doing. And that's the dance that you want to get in as you're working with a manager. And so just to underscore one more time, that what we're not saying is suck up to people who are higher status or affirm everything an important person says as brilliant. That's both unimpressive to say nothing of dishonest. We are encouraging folks to approach some of these interactions with finesse and to think about how you can share deserved praise with the people you work with and share credit when appropriate, especially if that person is your superior in the workplace. So there you have it, some additional excerpts from the Startup Review podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, I'm Ben Kesnoka. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.